This is part two, I guess, of the series that we've been tracking on. So last week, for those of you who weren't here, we we kicked off this collection of talks by starting with chapter one of the book of Jonah and uh, preached a message called Catch Me If You Can, really talked about Jonah on the run and God catching up with Jonah. And this week we're looking at part two. Now this is chapter one, verses 17. Then I'll read all the way through chapter two. It says here, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Kind of dramatic, Jonah. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I have vowed and I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And we're just going to leap to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 16, verses... 25. Jesus speaking to his disciples, but in other contexts, he speaks the same verse to crowds of people. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd use your word tonight, speak to us, ignite hope and faith in people's hearts. And God, I pray we're walking out of here differently to the way that we walked in tonight, Lord. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You could entitle this message. This is a working title. I haven't landed on this yet, but losing to win. Okay? Speak from the subject, losing to win. Just by way of show of hands, how many of you like winning? Yeah. Winning's good, isn't it? Winning's way better than losing. For us, when we go away on holiday, you know, the board games always come out, don't they? Monopoly, Uno, um, Last Card, Poker. And I'm one of those, like, annoying people on holiday who, who can't just play, like, a board game for the sake of playing a board game, like, oh, I don't really care. I'm like that annoying person who is, gets competitive, even at board game levels. If it's Uno, I'm, like, out to win. I'm like, let's go. We're not messing around here. Like, I play to win. I don't play to lose. Like, this is my southern hemisphere, maybe, like, culture coming out a little bit, you know? Um, but I play to win. How, how many of you like to back a winner? Not that just you just like to win, but, but that you like... You like to back winners. I mean, my wife, she's a little crazy because she's like normal, like as in like she's not competitive at all on a, on a normal everyday, you know, thing. But whenever she gets to like 
play a board game or like Uno, she, she, she turns into a creative monster. It's not creative. I mean, a competitive monster. And, and it cracks me up because like, I asked her one time, like, oh, what team do you support, like, as in football? And she was like, oh, I like the red team. And I was like, which one's that? And she's like, oh, the man, is it the Manchester? The, the Manchester United one? And I was like, yeah, yeah, but the, the Manchester United one. And I'm like, why do you support them? She's like, oh, because they always used to win when I was a kid. And I'm like, glory hunter. <laughs> but I think we like to back winners, don't we? I mean, I remember my dad growing up. And, um, you know, we support the All Blacks, um, which you want to support, you know, if you're supporting rugby, because they always win. Um, but I remember my dad, like, growing up, like, sitting at the TV screen and, like, literally throwing things at the TV screen if the All Blacks were losing. He would, you know, he's a normal guy, but he would lose his ever-present mind if the All Blacks started losing because he was like, we have to win, because winning is much better than losing, isn't it? <laughs> I like winning. I like to back a winner. I think I'm just going to be one of those annoying dads as well, you know, like when my son is like playing like rugby or whatever, who like literally like runs down the field after him like, go, run, like just crazy dad vibes, you know, (laughs) coming out on the sports field because I want to back a winner. (laughs) I think for most of us, I think we would rather win than lose, wouldn't we? I think we would rather back a winner than, than a loser. And the crowds in which Jesus was speaking to at this time, 2,000 years ago, were too accustomed in this way. They were, they were hardwired towards winning. I mean, there were lots of games in the Roman Empire. I'm sure you've heard of lots of them going on. The, the Colosseum hadn't yet been built, but it was no doubt in the minds of the Romans and the games that they were planning to show and all that type of thing. And so... You know, the Roman, the Grecian world, the Jewish world, no doubt, much like you and me, were, were wanting to back winners and were wanting to win rather than to lose. And so when Jesus is standing before the crowd and his disciples, and when he says, if you want to save your life, then you're going to lose it. But if you're prepared to lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it. I can only imagine the gasps and the groans or maybe even the deep silence in the crowd as to... What are they talking about? Have you ever had that moment where you like, you hear Jesus say some things and you're like, man, that's so good. Like, you know, and, and John and you're like, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. And you're like, oh, Jesus, preach. That deserves a Pentecostal amen. Hallelujah. Like, that is so good. And then he says some things. You're like, really? Like, did Jesus say that? Like, <laughs> did, can we like skip or like, can we put that somewhere else? Like, I don't know what to do with that. And we kind of like, put those statements over into this pile over here. We were like, what do we really do with that? But I think in what Jesus was saying here is that in order to win, you first have to be prepared to lose. And this is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. This is the upside-down kingdom that Jesus was offering. This is the gospel Jesus said, if you want to be great, then you first got to become a servant. He says, if you want to find life, then you first have to be prepared to lose your life, lose your agenda, lose your will, lose your way, surrender your purposes, surrender your plans, and pick up my plans and my purposes and my will and my agenda.
So what does this look like in the book of Jonah? I think, in fact, chapter 2 offers us um, a lot of symbolism and, and reflects ultimately what Jesus was saying here in Matthew chapter 16. In chapter 1, we've seen Jonah on the run. We see a winner, so to speak. You know, God comes to his man in Israel. He's kind of like the glory boy of Israel. He's the prophet. He's the mouthpiece, you know, of God. And God has a plan. And so he comes to Jonah and he speaks to him. And he says, Jonah, I'm calling you to the Ninevites. Go, I'm sending you. And as we know, the story goes, he runs in the other direction. He wants nothing to do with his plan. So he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And God catches up with him, like we talked about last week. And we have this moment where Jonah sort of gets to the end of himself. And he, in so many words, he, he kind of just gives up. And he's like, oh, okay, God, you got my attention. You caught me. I surrender. And so in the middle of the storm, he says to the sailors, guys, this is what you've got to do to stop the storm. You have to throw me into the sea. And so the sailors pick him up. And they throw him into the sea. And I'm not even sure if Jonah at that point thought of the significance or the symbolic representation of that act or whatever. Maybe it was just an instinctive decision. Who knows how or why he came to that point. But that act is symbolic in a couple of ways. Firstly, and it's a substitutionary act because Jonah was cast into the waves and then peace came upon the waters and the sailors praised God. Jesus was cast into the storm for our peace. It is a substitutionary act, but it's not just a substitutionary act. It is in so many ways Jonah coming to this point where he undergoes a death to himself. And I guess you could say he comes to this point where he is prepared to lose, lose on his own plan, lose on his own purpose, lose on his own will, lose on his own way, and he is thrown into the waters. But the most amazing thing in this passage of text right here is that the closer Jonah gets to dying, the closer Jonah gets to death, it's actually the closer he gets to God. If you want to find life, Firstly, you need to be prepared to lose your life. And so Jonah starts sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and God is right there. God provides a great fish to come and swallow up Jonah. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that we should never mistake God's provision for his punishment. God threw the storm into Jonah's path. Remember that? And, you know, I talked about the whole idea of you know, some of us, maybe we see the storm as God's punishment, Jonah's rebellion and his sin, but ultimately that's not what it was really about. It was, it was God trying to get Jonah's attention. It was God rousing Jonah from his sleep, tapping him on the shoulder and saying, Jonah, I'm still here. I'm not going to leave you that. The storm was a grace. It was God's provision. It was waking Jonah up. And here we see God's provision once again. God does not leave Jonah to his own devices. God does not leave Jonah to die, to sink to the bottom of the ocean. But God is right there alongside Jonah. And he is providing by his grace. He is dispensing his grace under Jonah once again. Powerful. 
And so we find Jonah in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And I guess Jonah stays in this belly for three days, and I think, you know, we could say, well, maybe that was a wasted time. You know, what was that all about? But uh, I grew up in the 90s, and um, did anyone else grow up in the 90s? Great decade. Shell suits, Disney classics, Nintendo. Yeah, great decade. (laughs) Anyway, I remember in the 90s, we would go away, like, on holiday, and my parents had this like film camera and so they would like take photos on holiday and then they would come back and then they would take it to the Photoshop, do you remember that? And then they would leave it with the Photoshop for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe even a month. And you, you didn't know the photos that you took because it's not digital, it was just all analog right on film. And so you don't know what you're getting back. But what I've more recently discovered is that there is a great deal of development that happens in order to process film. You know, there, is, there was a real process. My brother's a photographer, so he's telling me about it. Anyway, from, from what I understand, they take the camera into a dark room, a room that is totally blacked out because if there's any light, then it will expose the film and it'll ruin your photos, right? And then they have to, like, let it soak in water. They have to hang it up to dry. They have to do that, you know, with all of the different photos that you want. And then after that whole process, then they can finally give you back the photos. And then you're like, oh, is that what I took? <laughs> really? <laughs> so you get you back your photos. And I think what God is doing here with Jonah is he is taking Jonah into this space where he is using this dark space to develop Jonah, to refine Jonah's character. In the same way that film and processed and developed in a dark room, I think God uses the obscure moments and the, the dark moments and the, the strange moments and the moments where like, where does that sit? Like, what's that about? He uses those moments in our lives to develop us, to refine us, to shape and mold us and form us into the people that ultimately he has created us to be. No season is wasted. No obscure season is wasted. And maybe you find yourself in an obscure season right now where you're like, God, I just, I don't know what's happening in my life. Like, I don't feel like I'm moving forward. I don't feel like I'm moving backwards even. You know, it's just, it doesn't seem to be any direction. doesn't seem to be any movement it just seems to be a bit of a weird season. And maybe you could look at that season and despise it and, and think, man, that was a waste. Like, really, what was that about? And I'm speaking from personal experience here, and I'm speaking from my own challenges in seasons that I've had. And you can, it's very easy to do, isn't it? But I think it's important for us not to miss the moment on what God is doing because he is using those moments in our lives to build us and strengthen us. Think about Abraham for a moment. Abraham was promised a child, and then 20 years goes past, and he's like, really, God? Where's the child? And he has to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait till he's like 120 years old, and then he has a kid that's really weird. But anyway, that happens. What about Moses? Moses had this deep desire as a young man to free his Israelite brothers and sisters from their captivity. 
He murders someone. He gets thrown out of Egypt. He's cast into obscurity for 40 years. And then God calls him out of the desert back into Egypt to deliver the Israelites. Think about Joseph, the arrogant teenager with a cool coat who was cast into a prison for 10 years, who was then elevated to the most powerful position in all of Egypt. Think of David, who was anointed king at 17 years old, who then went on the run from murderous King Saul and went from cave to cave to cave to cave for years and years and years until he finally he was elevated to king. If you look past through the pages of history, Every man and woman of God have been through these obscure and challenging seasons of life. Even Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the desert, a a time of trial, a time of temptation, a time of obscurity, a time where nothing was really happening, a, a time of barrenness, so to speak. But God was God was using it. And God is using all of these moments in our lives. In fact, this is, what, this is what Paul has to say about those moments in our lives. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Really? <laughs> I don't know about that. But anyway, thanks, Paul. We rejoice in our sufferings. This is why. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So there is something that your obscurity is producing in you. God is using that season to produce character and draw out a confident hope of salvation in you. Jonah sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and he has a deep-rooted sense of self-righteousness. I mean, he sees himself as way better than the Assyrians. He is prideful in every way. He is a nationalist. He is a strict sort of Israelite. And the Assyrian people were a people that he hated. He despised them. He wanted nothing to do with them. He didn't think they were worthy of God's salvation. He thought they were beneath him. And so when God calls him to the very people that he hated and despised, he was like, "Mm, not me, thanks. Not me. I want to see their destruction. I want to see you rain fireballs of heaven, from heaven, down on them. I want to see them burn in front of my very eyes. This is Jonah. This is how self-righteous he is. And so God deals with his self-righteousness and pride by humbling him, pulling him to the bottom of the ocean in a fish, And this is where God is dealing with Jonah. And even at the bottom of the ocean, God was there with Jonah. Regardless of whatever you go through, whether you find yourself on the ends of the earth or the bottom of the ocean, God is still there in his grace. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he is drawing the best out of you. How about we go and give God a little Anglican hand clap right there? That's a good place to... (laughs) It's brilliant. So it's in the belly of the fish that we see the prophet respond for the first time. We've seen him running, but now we see him responding. And this prayer are the first words that we see from the prophet. And I'm not going to get into the prayer, like all the details of it. You can do that yourself. You can go home and read it for yourself. But there is a rhythm to the prayer, which is quite interesting. And I believe that it is reflected throughout the Gospels. In fact, Jonah starts by saying, I am distressed. 
meaning I am, oh, I'm, I'm beside myself. I am so depressed. I am distressed. Yet, you will deliver me. He says, I am going down. Seaweeds wrapped around my head. I'm going down to the bottom of the mountains. Yet, you will raise me up. I am dying. I am going down to death. Yet, you will lift me. I am helpless. Yet, I will hope in you. So Jonah has this air of helplessness to him, but there is also the sound of hope in his prayer. And the gospel will always lead us to this conclusion that we are more corrupt than we dare believe, but God is more gracious than we ever imagined. We are both helpless yet hopeful. Everybody needs hope. Everybody is searching for hope. There is a world out there who is longing for hope. And the great claim of the Christian faith is that we have hope. Christ offers us a hope for tomorrow, a future. He promises that death is not the end. And it's this juxtaposition of helplessness and hope that makes the Christian faith so unique and so powerful at the same time that we can be utterly helpless in our own strength, yet at the same time be absolutely hopeful. And this was the space that Jonah found himself in. This rhythm to his prayer sort of demonstrates this idea that he was both helpless yet hopeful. He was going down, yet he believed that God was going to raise him up. This is the subversive message of the cross. I guess if you were in that day, in the times of Jesus, you would have seen Jesus being convicted by the Roman Empire. Remember the Roman Empire, they kept the peace through exercising their power. They had governors and every different region, and these governors were given the authority to execute anybody who stepped out of line, and they would do so freely at the drop of a hat. And so Jesus is handed over to the Roman Empire. The Jews had laid up these serious charges against Jesus. And Jesus then is sent to the cross. He is, he's crucified, and as he's dying on a cross, maybe onlookers, passers-by, maybe everyone who heard it would have thought that day that, oh, we lost. That Jesus fellow, we thought he was different. You know, he's preaching about the kingdom of God. I thought he was the king of the Jews. They even wrote that above his, above his cross. But he lost in the Roman Empire won. The Jewish state, they won. Right? Well, they thought they did. And then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus stripped death and sin of its power. And Paul puts it like this. He made a public spectacle of them at the cross, triumphing over them in victory all. God did once and for all away with that Jesus says and in order to find life you first got to first got to lose life he, he says this at the last supper 
Very truly, I tell you, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel teaches us that in order to win in the kingdom of God, in order to produce fruit from our lives, in order to be successful, so to speak, as in having the fruit of the Spirit coming out in our lives, exercising our Christian faith and experiencing hope and all that God's got for us. We first need to be prepared to, to lose out, maybe, or surrender our will and our ways and our purposes and our plans and ultimately open up our lives to, to God and Christ and what He has to offer. And we can come to God and we can, we can say, Lord, I, I, I give up. I, I give you my life. And maybe we might think that we might lose out on a whole lot, but ultimately it's, it's incomparable to what we gain. What we gain is so much more than what we could ever lose because He has such a great hope on offer for us. This is what it means to be a Christian, to give our lives over to Christ, open up our lives to Him. Paul said it like this, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has got hope on offer for you today. He's got life on offer for you today. If you want to find life, if you want to win, kingdom of God you must first be prepared to lose and if you lose then you're going to win let's close our eyes and just be still before God and just consider the service and maybe the worship and what's been talked about here I guess it's quite a personal message and maybe even challenging in some regards. And sometimes it's, it's good to just take stock of, of where you stand before God. And God, am I holding anything back from you right now?
God, if there's areas of our lives that we're holding back from you, that we're, we're not letting you in, God, we just ask right now, Holy Spirit, you'd point those out, that you would shine a light on those areas. doing in each of our lives. In Jesus' name.